Welcome back to New Books and Gender Studies. I'm the co-host of the channel, Lillian Barger. Today I'll be speaking with Jonathan Ige. He's a New York Times best-selling author of four books and former journalist for the Wall Street Journal. His book, The Birth of the Pill, How Four Crusaders Reinvented Sex and Launched a Revolution, published by W.W. Norton & Company, is a topic of this show. Ike has given us a lively narrative history of the development and acceptance. Welcome back to New Books and Gender Studies. I'm the co-host of the channel, Lillian Barger. Today I'll be speaking with Jonathan Ike. He's a New York Times best-selling author of four books and former journalist for the Wall Street Journal. His book, The Birth of the Pill, how Four Crusaders Reinvented Sex and Launched a Revolution, published by W.W. Norton & Company, is a topic of this show. Ike has given us a lively narrative history of the development and acceptance of the birth control pill. He presents us with four risk-taking outsiders whose paths became intertwined in the pursuit of a reliable and simple contraceptive. The feminist Margaret Sanger, in her campaign for the rights of women, sought a reliable birth control method as a means to sexual and social liberation. The eccentric genius scientist Gregor Pincus's research stretched the boundaries of law and ethics and tied him to the business interests of sterile pharmaceuticals. The wealthy socialite Catherine McCormick's singular focus and funding kept the research going. The handsome promoter John Rock, Catholic infertility doctor, was willing to go against his church's teaching and provide untested drugs to desperate patients. The story begins in the radically and sexually freewheeling Greenwich Village of the early 20th century. Ike follows Sanger's crusade for birth control information, cultural change, scientific victories and defeats, and the marketing of what became the first FDA-approved contraceptive pill in 1960. This is a well-researched and riveting story of four exceptional people and how the intimate lives of women and men were revolutionized by their idea. The birth control pill forever changed how we think about marriage, sexuality, and parenting. Here is my conversation with Jonathan Ige. Now let me introduce you to the author, Jonathan Ige. Hello, Jonathan. Hi, how are you, Lillian? Welcome to the show, and thank you for sharing your thoughts with our audience. Each of the people you write about, are, each of them are both fascinating and provocative people. But before we start talking about them and their story, tell us something about yourself, your background, and how, how you came to write The Birth of the Pill. It's kind of a long story, but I'm a longtime journalist. I started out in newspapers and uh, eventually gravitated to magazines. I wound up at the Wall Street Journal, and I did my first book was a baseball biography on Lou Gehrig. Then I did a book on Jackie Robinson's first season in baseball. Then I did Al Capone. So uh, obviously, the next book should be about birth control, right? It's just a clear pattern there. No, uh, it made no sense at all, except that I wanted to try something different. I wanted to push myself out of my comfort zone. Um, my wife was strongly encouraging me to write a book that um, women might be more interested in because my other books were a little bit male-centric. And um, I thought that was actually pretty smart. Women are, are better readers than men, I think. So I started thinking about you know, what are some stories that, that interested me? What are some stories that really made a big difference? Uh, what are the most important um, inventions in the, of the century? What are the most important innovations uh, for, for women? And I remembered a lecture that I'd heard, actually a sermon on the birth control pill that my rabbi had given maybe 10 or 12 years ago. And he made the case that the birth control pill was the most important invention of the 20th century. 
And at the time, I had thought he was crazy. It couldn't have been, he couldn't be right. But the, as I thought about it, uh, I thought he had a point. And I began to wonder, well, how did we get the birth control pill? If it's so important, how did it come about? Why would anybody invent a pill to empower women and to liberate women, to, to allow them to enjoy sex more? Back in the 1950s, none of that made any sense. Um, society just, um, you know, birth control was still illegal in most places. So who invented it and why? So I became really curious and began to look into it. And that's kind of the, the short version of how my, you know, curiosity led me to this subject. And when I, when I found the, the cast of great characters, as you mentioned, um, these four fantastic rebels who pulled this thing off against all kinds of crazy odds when um, it never should have been remotely possible or even, you know, imaginable. How did they do it? Um, that's when I really got excited. Well, the, in, the initial uh, motivation for developing a safe and reliable, easy form of birth control that everyone, women could use easily everywhere, there were two motivations. One was population control, and that figures in your book. And the other is sexual freedom within marriage. Mm-hmm. Can, can you unpack that a little bit for us? Yeah, um, really the sex came first in Margaret Sanger's mind. She was working as a nurse in the Lower East Side of New York, and she saw um, just how women were really enslaved by their fertility in many ways. They were having more children than they than they could possibly take care of, um, more children than their, their bodies could sustain. Her own mother died after having given birth to 11 children and having had 18 pregnancies. So she saw that it would be um, hugely helpful to women's health and to their quality of life if they could decide how many children they wanted to have and when they wanted to have them. And that would also free them to actually enjoy sex. Um, And she believed that sex was a a great pleasure and that people should be able to enjoy it and that that women would have more options in their lives if if they could um, disconnect sex from reproduction. So... Um, later she began to say that population control would also be a huge issue, and that was partly because it was more politically correct, politically acceptable in the 1940s and 50s to try to do something about the population crisis um, and uh, starvation and poverty. But it really began with her uh, um, uh, focused mostly on, on sex and, and fertility. But you would say, you could would you say that the population issue, global population concern, was fed into the acceptance of, of the birth control pill. Yes, it was hugely important, and it was a way for Sanger to go out and get allies, get more people to work on this, to find a scientist who might agree to work with her, because population control is a, is a massive global issue, and a scientist could see how you know his, his ego would, would, would feed off of that, right? Here's a chance to really change the world. And to make it seem more legitimate, because if you went around in the 1950s saying that this was, um, you know, a, a scientific project that was being undertaken so that women could have more sexual pleasure, even so, even if you said so, women could control their own bodies, it would be very hard to find a male scientist who would um, embrace that as a cause. It was just too controversial at the time. Now, the four people that you deal with, Margaret Sanger, Gregory Pincus, Catherine McCormick, and John Rock, uh, the main characters, they were they had a, a multitude of challenges to overcome. There were cultural issues, there were scientific issues, and there were legal issues. Um, so what are some of the – first, let's talk about the cultural, the broader cultural context in which these people were trying to find this reliable birth control. 
Yeah, it was a massive um, cultural obstacle because, I mean, for thousands of years, um, society had to start determined that women had one role in society, and that was to be the vessel for carrying and raising children. And um, you know, we didn't really even understand until the 20th century that um, children grew from a from a sperm and an egg. People really believed that it came just from the sperm. So the woman's job was was secondary. She was just there to, to carry this child. Um, so you have this terrible sexism coming up around that, and the sense that um, you know if women are allowed to control their own fertility, they're going to want to break out of all the roles that have been assigned to them all these years. So there's this you know the, it, it's a lot of sexism that had to be overcome, and there's this sense that um, you know. Sex is not supposed to be for pleasure. Sex is supposed to be just for reproduction, um, at least uh, where women are concerned. It's a little bit different. We have a little bit more um, of, a, of a willing attitude to allow men to have sex without uh, worrying about having children. But those were some of the societal issues that had to be overcome. And as I said earlier, there were also laws um, banning the use of, of contraception in this country in 30 states and on the federal um, ledgers. So... Um, it was very difficult to find anybody, any legitimate scientist, any um, drug company, any university that would cooperate with research on contraception. Now, the way that uh, Gregory Pincus started into this was it was a broader research into human uh, fertility or reproduction. It wasn't cast as we're looking for a birth control method. Um, well, yes and no. I mean, he began his work in the 30s really just studying human reproduction and and learned how the body worked. But when he met Margaret Sanger, he was not working on, on reproductive issues anymore. And Sanger said to him, she's looking for this, this miracle tablet, a pill that would allow women to turn on and off their reproductive systems. And so she made it very clear what she wanted. And, Sa- and Pincus said, yes, I think I know how to make that. So they would often... Um, disguise it um, and say that they were just interested in studying reproduction and seeing how progesterone affected the reproductive process and seeing if it might help to regulate menstrual cycles. But they knew all along what the bottom line goal really was. It's interesting because John Rock, who was a Catholic infertility doctor, he was an infertility doctor. He was trying to help women have children. That's right. And he gets involved in this project also. How does he get involved? It's a great story, and uh, you know he's also a Catholic who goes to mass every day. So, but he's come to believe from his work helping women. Um, you know, he's he's one of the world's leading gynecologists. So he's not only helping women um, overcome infertility; he's delivering babies. Um, he's seeing women who've had too many children and and, and are considering hysterectomies. Um, and, and he's begun to believe over the course of his career that the church is wrong on this issue of birth control. That women really need um, to be able to control their own bodies. He believes that women should be able to have sex for pleasure, that it's an important part of marriage. And um, he's willing to take some chances and, and to see if he can possibly can help women and maybe down the road convince the church to be more open-minded. Um, so when he meets um, Pincus and mentions that he's been experimenting with, with um, progesterone on women who are infertile, Pincus gets very excited because he's been thinking about using progesterone for the opposite reason to help women avoid pregnancy. So maybe there's some way they can collaborate and maybe they can use Rock's infertile patients to test progesterone as a as a contraceptive, which is just crazy when you think about it. So the very first women in this country who receive the hormonal birth control are women who are trying to have babies. 
but it was also a good way for them to test to see that progesterone really did shut down the reproductive system. Going back to the cultural issue, uh, John Rock was a Catholic. He was a very devout Catholic, except for this issue. Now, Margaret Sanger really was very much infuriated by the Catholic Church. And what I want to understand here is that Catholics in America were a minority. The minority of the churches were not Catholic. Right. So why did she focus in on that? And what was the position or the attitude of Protestant America, which was the majority, regarding birth control? Uh, well, well, Sanger really focused on the Catholic Church because she was raised a Catholic and came to really um, become very – she became very angry with the church, the way her family was treated, um, and having seen her, her mother um, – Give, give birth more times than she wanted to because she didn't have access to, to birth control. Um, so Sanger had a great prejudice uh, against the Catholic Church, and uh, that made her reluctant to work even with John Rock because she didn't trust him. She didn't think any Catholic could be trusted to work on this issue. And and the Catholic Church was, was clearly more um, opposed to birth control than other churches. Um, many religions, including um, many um, strains of, the, of uh, Protestants, Episcopalians, Jews, um, were okay with birth control, and um, you know they didn't go around bragging about it because it was still controversial in society. But there were many churches that told their parishioners it was okay to control, try to control your family size. As more um, birth control options became available in the 20th century, and condoms and diaphragms and IUDs became um, available, they were not always um, completely effective. But as these things became more available, women began. Um, expressing the desire to con- to control their family size, and most many churches and many religious organizations thought that was a good thing. Uh, they thought it was good for, fa- for the American family. Now, the availability of birth control before the pill—you just mentioned a few of them that were available. How widely were they? Were they laws that said you could not sell these? What were the limitations on women getting this? Was it doctors reluctant to prescribe diaphragms or teach women how to use, you know, condoms or whatever, or men to use condoms? Was it an education issue? What was preventing people from using the the birth control methods they already had? There were laws on the books um, in 30 states and in the federal government. They were not always enforced, but they were sometimes enforced. That said you could not distribute birth control unless it was a doctor prescribed it for a medical emergency. Um, now, me- wealthy women could always get around that. They could find doctors. They could pay doctors enough to, to give them what they needed. Um, they could send for them from, from catalogs overseas. But poor and middle-class women had, didn't really have the, those options. So while um, things like Birth con- like diaphragms and and, um, and uh, cervical caps and, and condoms were available. They were often um, difficult to obtain, and they were illegal. And in, 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 in some cases, the government did make examples of people and did arrest them, even for distributing information about birth control. You could go to jail, and Margaret Sanger did go to jail several times for trying to help women get birth control. Um, she opened clinics. Some of the first clinics um, in the world were opened. Uh, the late part of the uh, 19 teens, and um, she faced arrest repeatedly for that. Now, the sci- there was a, the scientific challenge of this. Was a scientific challenge because uh, scientists just sort of avoided studying this? It, maybe we could have found the pill a lot earlier, or because we don't want to tamper with nature? Or were there actually, what were the, the real scientific challenges of finding this this? Easy contraceptive. 
there were a couple of problems with finding it. One was this, that there wasn't much incentive. No drug company was going to manufacture something that was illegal, and no university was going to uh, encourage scientists to do research on, on something that had no um, discernible um, result that you, know, you couldn't you couldn't sell this thing and you couldn't give it to women it was illegal why would anybody do it um, the other thing is that there really wasn't the science for it until the 1940s because we didn't understand how hormones worked we were only beginning to understand how hormones controlled the body in the 1940s things like um, steroids like um, insulin cortisone were beginning to, to come into use so Gregory Pincus was, you know, came along at the right time, first of all, because he understood that hormones controlled reproduction, so that if you gave a woman progesterone, her body would think she was already pregnant and she wouldn't get pregnant again. This was just the simplest way he could explain it. But it was also incredibly fortunate that he was um, able to take this enormous risk. He had nothing to lose because he'd already been fired from Harvard. He was working out of his own laboratory in a converted garage and was looking for something to do that would prove that he had been um, wrongly fired by Harvard, something that would restore his reputation and give him a shot at, at, um, at you know, scientific uh, immortality. And he saw this as, as, his, as his ticket to um, restoring his reputation. Now, uh, Gregory Pincus, we know a lot about Margaret Sanger. She seems to be a lot more present in, in popular culture because I think because of Planned Parenthood. In her involved, right. so but Gregory Pincus, most people don't know who that name is, or who he was, or where he came from, or he was brilliant. He was a genius, yeah. And but he was also kind of eccentric and an outsider. So talk to me about and talk to the audience a little bit about Gregory Pincus, how he stretched the the boundaries of law and ethics in his experiments, uh, his business interests of Searle Pharmaceuticals. Uh, you know his background at Harvard. Just he's he's a person I think we need to know more about. He's a fascinating character, really one of the great mavericks in in, in scientific history, I think, and and he deserves to be better known. Um, he's a, a Jewish guy who grew up on a commune in New Jersey, um, goes to Cornell and then Harvard, and Harvard um, believes he's one of the great scientific minds of his time and. He's working on in vitro fertilization in the 1930s, long before anybody else um, has had success with it. And he appears to be on the brink of, of doing extraordinary things. Um, but he also has a tremendous ego, and he goes out and talks to reporters and gives interviews to, to family magazines, saying that you know soon we won't need um, sex to have babies. We'll be able to do it all in a lab. And this scares the hell out of people. And uh, he ends up getting denied tenure at Harvard, even though, um, you know, a few years prior, Harvard had said his work was some of the most important going on anywhere in the um, in the in the university. So now he's he's out of a job, can't get hired anywhere in the country. Not a single university will, will give him work, and he does something that almost nobody's ever heard of before. He goes out and starts his own lab um, and and his own scientific foundation, going door to door in Worcester, Massachusetts, asking for donations. So he, so he was a salesman. On his own. He was a salesman. He was an entrepreneur. He was a he was a rebel. He's like you know Steve Jobs, um, you know, starting uh, Apple in his garage with you know with Wozniak, right? Uh, just he's, he says, well, I'll just have to do it myself then, and he figures he'll find a way, and, and it's incredibly courageous. And that it, that's he's maybe the only guy in the country who was in a position to take Margaret Sanger up on this this crazy idea of trying to um, build a birth control pill, something they know is revolutionary, something they know is illegal. 
Um, you know, who else would would attempt such a thing? So it's it's absolutely, you know, borderline miraculous that these two found each other. Now, there's not a lot of regulation at that point uh, of research, especially an independent lab like this. He doesn't. He's not part of a corporation, even though he, he later he gets corporate money. Uh, he is pretty free to do whatever. He could do the most Frankenstein experiments in his lab, yeah. and there's no check. There's no university check. No, oh. and that's why he's able to take chances that other scientists would never take chances on. So going to John Rock and saying, hey, let's take these infertile women and give them progesterone and see if it really makes them infertile for a while. Um, and then maybe they'll bounce back and they'll get pregnant later. I mean, and then he goes into an insane asylum and, and, and gives progesterone to women there without even asking their permission. And he tries it on men in the insane asylum just for the heck of it. You know what? Let's see what happens. Um, well, and then they need more women, so they go down to Puerto Rico um, where American laws don't apply. And, and, um, and you know, they're often working in clinics that are founded by the eugenics movement, which is this radically racist movement. You know, all these things that you could never do if you were working for a drug company or if you're working for Harvard. Um, and he's just, he realized, he's, he's focused on the bottom line. Like, if we want to make this happen, we're going to have to take some chances. And like I said, he's got nothing to lose. So you've got Margaret Sanger, we got Gregory Pincus, who's this genius scientist, and then we've got Catherine McCormick, which I, I, I couldn't really get why she was so focused on birth control. She was a widow very early, she didn't remarry. Why did she not remarry, and what was her story, and how she had a lot of money to fund Pincus and this research? Another wild character. You couldn't make these people up. Um, in fact, there's a great novel about Catherine McCormick and her marriage uh, by T.C. Boyle called Riven Rock, which I would recommend. Um, but Catherine McCormick is a wealthy socialite who marries an even wealthier man, um, Stanley McCormick, who is um, part of the Chicago McCormick family, the inventors of the Reaper, the founders of International Harvester. And um, on her honeymoon, uh, her husband goes mad and becomes dangerous and, and has to be institutionalized for the rest of his life. Uh, so Catherine McCormick, um, prior to her marriage, was a, was a feminist, a suffragette, uh, was working to, to help women get the vote, and was interested in, in Margaret Sanger's crusade for, for contraception. But once her husband goes mad, she devotes the next 20, 30 years to his care and trying to help him recover, looking for a cure. He's schizophrenic. She begins experimenting. Begins. She's also a biologist, one of the first women to graduate from MIT with a degree in science. So she works with scientists on possible hormonal treatments to schizophrenia. So she begins to learn how hormones work. She hears about the work of Gregory Pincus, some of the others who are working with hormones. And when her husband finally dies and leaves her with this uh, incredible fortune, she goes back to Margaret Sanger and says, I'd like to get, I'd like to get back to our work on, on contraception. Now, why was that so important to her? It may have been because she was terribly afraid of what would have happened if she'd had a baby with this uh, madman and whether she might have passed along the schizophrenia to another generation. That certainly could have been a factor for her. But I also think she sees, um, as a very powerful, very intelligent woman who had the chance to go to college because she was so wealthy, she sees that a lot of women are being held back by the demands of motherhood and that if they could limit their family size or, or better time when they become mothers, they might have the chance to go to college too the way she did. So she makes this her, her big cause uh, for the, the 
the, the last part of her life after her husband is dead, and she um, agrees to bankroll the entire project. Planned Parenthood doesn't want to pay for the um, research into the contraceptive pill. They think it's too dangerous, that it's too risky, that it'll destroy their organization's reputation if something goes wrong. So Sanger can't get her own organization to fund this research so that she has to rely on Catherine McCormick. And McCormick just says, whatever you need. You know, she writes check after check. She funds all of Pincus's work. She builds new, new laboratories, um, new animal research labs, buildings, um, pays for all the, 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 um, the, the clinical trials in Puerto Rico, all of it. Almost all of it comes from one woman. It's really extraordinary. The, the role of Planned Parenthood in the development of the pill is, uh, I was some surprised by it. I, I thought that they would be much more enthusiastic but they, yeah. and it was run by the top people were, were men. Right. That um, was another thing that I think people would probably find uh, surprising. Yeah, Sanger started Planned Parenthood, but she became a little frustrated with them because as the organization grew, they became a little bit more conservative and they wanted to make sure that this thing that they built didn't fall apart. And um, that meant not taking so many chances and Sanger was as radical as ever. And she was a little bit um, too radical for some of the leaders of the organization. And she felt pushed aside by the organization that she helped create. Um, she didn't even like the name um, Planned Parenthood. She thought it was, it was too conservative and, and she re- objected to that when they changed the name. Um, she thought it, it should mention the name should mention birth control, um, that it was important to uh, declare exactly what, what we're doing here. Um, but nevertheless, Planned Parenthood, um, you know, was conservative, but they didn't get in their way. And eventually they, they came around and, and, um, and realized that, that, that women wanted this and needed it. Probably did. Would you say that Planned Parenthood prepared the way for the acceptance of the birth control pill? Well, they certainly did. Um, because once Sanger got the, the pill going and once she proved that it worked and that women wanted this, um, Planned Parenthood could see that there was this massive wave building that, that women were, were screaming for some form of birth control that was more effective um, because they really um, had no reliable options back um, before the, the pill came along. It was, you know, it was it was all, you know, a, a roll of the dice, whether you can get pregnant or not. And, and, and good, safe, reliable contraception was, was hard to find. Now, what were the do you do you have any idea what the uh, failure rates were for things like the uh, well condoms if they weren't used they're not effective um, diaphragms jellies right. things like that the problem with all of those things you mentioned first of all is that they required the participation of men um, women did not have control Margaret Sanger always said the key word in birth control is control until women have control over whatever it is they're using. It doesn't matter because you have to. If you have to ask a man for permission, if you have to ask a man to put on the condom. If you have to, have to ask a male doctor to give you a prescription for an IUD, then it's just not. This, it's not going to work. She wanted something that women controlled, that they could take every day, whether they were going to have sex that day or not. Something they didn't have to fumble with right before having sex. Um, something that they could stop taking when they wanted to get pregnant. And um, yeah, the pill was was perfect for all that. But other forms of birth control that women were using were, were often, you know, like a 50-50 shot, whether it would work or not. Um, certainly things like, um, you know, diaphragms, um, which weren't properly fitted, weren't prescribed by doctors, very unreliable. And, and women at the time still believed that douching 
was a was a form of, of contraception, and it it wasn't. It was less than a fifty fifty success rate with that. So it was, um, you know, it, there was no tool. Margaret Sanger was was out there teaching people how to um, control their their family size, but she didn't have the tools uh, to give them to actually do it until the pill came along. So, how much was abortion used as a uh, birth control mechanism by women? Was was that it was the most common form of birth control in this country for most of this country's history. And it wasn't until the late 1800s that, that states began to outlaw it because they were worried that women were getting too much control of their, of their, um, of their own reproductive rights. With a lot of conservative state legislatures wanted to make sure that the role of the woman didn't change, that her role was to be there and to raise a family. And when abortion became so common that um, that, women, that, that men felt threatened, they outlawed abortion. It wasn't for any religious reason. It wasn't because uh, nobody ever mentioned um, you know, that the fetus had rights. It was really all about maintaining um, customs. So, um, but birth control, uh, but, but of course abortions were, uh, were, were not safe, and women continued to get them even after they were made illegal, and, and then they were even less safe because you had to go um, and get them through back channels. So once again, rich women could find safe abortions, but poor middle and middle class women could not. Uh, so it became a very serious health issue. Now you talk about uh, Margaret Sanger as not being a racist, but what was her involvement with the eugenics movement, and what was the place of the eugenics movement in American thought? Yeah, I don't know if I'd say Sanger wasn't a racist. I'd say everybody was a racist pretty yeah, much back in the right. 1920s, but not particularly um, so. I think she was more or less in line with, with the standards of, of the day um, that, you know, back in the 1920s and 30s, um, there was, you know, we were, we were living in a, in a society that, that absolutely believed that blacks were inferior and, and that she probably did too. Um, but at the same time, she believed that Planned Parenthood should, should do work in low-income communities, that she opened a clinic in Harlem and she had W.E.B. Du Bois on her board of directors. Um, she, in many ways, was very progressive on race, and in other ways, she was not. And her allegiance with the uh, eugenics movement is one of the more troubling um, chapters in her career. But again, I think you have to understand it in the context of the times. Um, the eugenicists believed that, that only fit people should be um, made, allowed or encouraged to reproduce, and that the uneducated, the poor, um, should be um, discouraged and, in, and in some cases, um, prevented they should be sterilized. Um, Sanger saw, and this was a popular movement in, in America in the 1930s. A lot of people in the mainstream bought into this idea. There were classes on eugenics taught at Harvard in the 1930s. So um, it was not so crazy for Sanger to to jump on that on that bandwagon. And she thought that they were powerful allies, and she was always focused on the bottom line. You know, what can we do to promote contraceptive rights, reproductive rights, and she saw a potential ally here because some of their mission was the same. And they had already spent a fortune opening clinics in, in places around the country and in other countries, and she was able to sort of piggyback on their work. So I think she um, more she was not driven so much by the ideology as the practicality of uh, getting something done. Now, was uh, Catherine McCormick involved in the eugenics movement or not? I don't think she was ever okay. uh, so was there any eugenics money that went to birth to this research by Gregory Pincus? Oh, yeah. Um, the, the, some of the eugenicists like um, Clarence Gamble 
um, helped fund Pincus's research, um, or at least helped him um, make inroads in Puerto Rico because the eugenicists had already opened a ton of clinics in Puerto Rico. So Pincus and the other scientists were able to go to those clinics and, and use some of the patients there as they began experimenting with, um, with progesterone. Now, sterilization uh, was one of the big uh, tools that eugenics could use, sterilizing yeah. undesirables, uh, right. mentally retarded or, or enfeebled or any kind of uh, obvious defect. Those people could be sterilized. What were the laws? Do you know? Yeah, um, there were um, laws that where judges could sentence people to be um, sterilized. But even more important, uh, there were places like in Puerto Rico where eugenicists would pay for women to be sterilized. If, they, if you came in and had a baby and you said you wanted to be sterilized after delivering the baby, the eugenics movement would pay for it. So um, there was a great push toward trying to help uh, what they believed would be to help curtail the explosion of populations. And, and for a lot of women, that um, sterilization was really the only option. It was that or or think about having abortions down the road. So I think for a lot of women, that sterilization became um, an option worth considering, especially when they were already there in the hospital having delivered a baby, and the thought of doing it again sometime soon was, was frightening. Now, what was interesting with your book, you had all these legal issues, you had all a lot of cultural barriers, scientific barriers, legal barriers. I mean, there's so many things that are uh, are going to are going to work against the development of the pill. But then it seems like in the late 50s, 1957 or so, there was this huge movement forward. And it was like overnight uh, the FDA seemed to approve it. Yeah. How, how did that happen? It seemed, it seemed to be sort of kind of quick. And there was this huge um, moment, this trigger, where all of a sudden um, you started to see the, um, the momentum Shift and it's it's not because the law changed. It's not because um, the, the the product had changed. What what happened was that women spoke, and and it's really remarkable because these four characters that we talked about, Rock and Pincus and McCormick and Sanger, are really out on their own. They have no support from from the government, from the university. Um, they're trying to pull off something that's never been done before. And and Pincus in this is a really important moment. Pincus in 1955 goes to the International Planned Parenthood Federation meeting in Tokyo and, and tells the world that he's discovered the birth control pill. And at this point, they've only tested on something like 35 women. It's ridiculous that he would make this kind of an announcement. And John Rock is screaming, don't do it, don't do it. You know, we're not, we, we're not ready. It's, 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 um, it's, it's irresponsible. But Pincus does it anyway. And what happens is that women read in the newspaper that there's a, there's a birth control pill coming. And that soon it will be possible to, to, to just turn on and off like a light switch your, your reproductive system. And they begin calling their doctors and saying, when can I get this? They begin writing these letters to, to Pincus and to, and to Sanger saying, I've heard about this. I need it now. And I've read these letters. They're, they're just painful to read because these women are, are desperate. Um, you know, they, they, their bodies can't hold up anymore. They can't feed their children. They've got children who are um, deformed because you know, they've been born with birth defects and they're desperate not to have another one. Um, and this groundswell begins to build. And now all of a sudden Pincus is able to get GD Searle to agree to help out the, the drug company to help out and to consider taking this to the FDA and seeking approval. And, and that's really extraordinary because, um, nothing like this has ever been approved before. There's never been a drug for healthy people. 
um, something you take every day in good health to control your lifestyle. And that's radical stuff. Um, but Searle is still cautious, so they don't call it birth control. They go to um, the FDA and they say they want approval for this drug um, to regulate women's menstrual cycles. And this is in step two, because now uh, the FDA, after a long, long debate, approves it, but they put a warning on the, lab- on the, on the bottle that says, warning, um, this product prevents pregnancy. And that's like the greatest advertisement they ever could have put on that bottle because women are now going to start to go to their doctors demanding this thing, saying, hey, I've got an irregular cycle. But what they're really doing is trying to prevent having you know, child number nine. And um, word gets around and, and a huge momentum begins to build this groundswell. And, and that changes the world because women are standing up for themselves and saying that we need this. We need it now. And everything begins to change from that moment on. Now, Pincus had quite a, a challenge trying to get uh, this human experiments done on this. He had done it on rabbits, lots of rabbits, mm-hmm. uh, but he needed to do it on women, on fertile women. Right. And he tried different things. Uh, and so by the time this thing was approved, how many people had actually, how many women had actually gone through a trial? Really not very many. Um, when they went to the FDA and asked for approval um, of, for regulation of the menstrual cycle, it was only about 160 women that they tested it on for, for six months or more. You have to test it for you know at least six months to see if there are any long-term side effects. So, um, But Pincus disguised that in the FDA application um, by saying that they tested it on 1,600 um, women's cycles. So they tested, basically they tested it on 160 women for an average of 10 months uh, or something like that, you know, 1,600 cycles. Um, and, and that sounded a lot more impressive than saying that you'd only tested it on 160 women. Um, but again, uh, you know, he was an outsider. He could take those kinds of chances and he had to. So what were the, what were the, the, the challenges in getting enough uh, women to participate in the trials? In Port, I know he went to Puerto Rico because there he felt like he could have more access to more women who were more desperate. And, you know, um, so what were some of his challenges in getting enough subjects? The biggest challenge was that the side effects were terrible. Um, and a lot of the women nurses and some of the women, there were a couple of women doctors involved in, in running these trials said, we've got to shut this down because women are nauseous. They're dizzy. They're suffering all kinds of pain, headaches. Um, and that's because the doses were, were much too high. Um, Pincus wanted to make sure it was 100% effective, so he kept the doses much higher than they had to be. Um, he figured as long as it worked, as long as no one got pregnant, he didn't really care um, how sick they got. And that's you know this obvious sexism. If it had been if he'd been a woman, he might have been a little more sensitive to it. But it, you know, in his defense, his own daughter was taking it. Uh, some of his cousins were taking it, and he said, "You may not like the side effects, but the side effects of pregnancy are a lot worse." Um, so try that if you want. And, you know, again, sexist male attitude. But um, if he hadn't if he hadn't been so uh, cavalier about it, we, maybe we wouldn't have had the pill. Maybe it wouldn't have it wouldn't have gotten approved. So who knows? I mean, who today knows? he couldn't today. He oh. would never get away with it today. No, he would just be he'd be 20 he years. No, he'd be he would have been stopped dead in his tracks because there was no you know, you didn't have to get um, permission. You didn't have to sign get consent forms signed. You didn't even have to tell these women that it was an experimental drug. You know, a lot of them believed that this was a new American drug, and they didn't know it was part of an experiment. 
Um, so you could never get away with any of this stuff today. Now, the other thing that was going on besides women making, you know, asking we need something to control our fertility, and you've got women writing their doctors and all this sort of stuff that's pushing this forward, you also have Hugh Hefner. Hmm. Yeah, the times were changing, right? And, and that's also important to note because um, the, the attitudes about sex in America are different by the 1950s. And if you think about what happened in World War II, men went overseas and they had sex for fun in ways they'd never dreamed of having before. And the army was handing out condoms to make sure they didn't get venereal diseases, basically saying, yes, we expect you to go out there and, and, and screw around. And women back in the States were also you know, enjoying more freedom than they'd ever enjoyed before because they're, some of them are working now. Some of them are moving out of their parental homes and getting their own places to live. And let's face it, some of them are fooling around too. They're afraid of having babies, but they're, they're pushing the envelope a little bit. So by the time the war ends, attitudes in this country about sex are beginning to loosen up. And somebody like Hugh Hefner can start Playboy magazine in the 1950s and, and suddenly find you know, he's working on this thing at his, you know, at his kitchen table. And suddenly he's got one of the best selling magazines in the world because there's this new age of, you know, friskiness and openness to the possibilities of, of sex for fun. And the pills coming along at just the right time. So he really grabs onto that. He's probably one of the big promoters of the pill. Yeah, I asked, I asked him, who was the first woman you ever slept with who was on the pill? And he said, oh, geez, I don't remember who was the first. Um, but I certainly know that after a little while, they were all using the pill. Um, well, Searle Cyril Pharmaceutical, um, this company that funded some of this, they were kind of cagey about the whole thing. They were, they were producing, I guess, pure hormones, synthetic hormones, for research purposes or for other purposes. I don't uh, exactly didn't get that. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in the 1950s, everybody was experimenting with new, with new synthetic uh, hormones just because it was, it, was the, the, it was the cutting edge. And they figured sometimes they would just figure out later what they would do with it. But. So did Searle... Uh, know or expect that there that this was a potential huge profit uh, opportunity for them. I think that they were conservative at first, and they were really um, cautious. They, they they didn't want to get involved in this. They asked specifically that Pincus make sure that the drug company's name did not appear on any of his research papers or on any uh, bottles that were being used in these clinical trials. They wanted to keep uh, their distance, but when they saw that women were were calling out for this, and women were going to their doctors saying they wanted this. And when it got approved by the FDA um, for the for regulation of the menstrual cycles, they realized that this was potentially a blockbuster because this is something women would take every day, even when you know, for, possibly for years, um, when they were perfectly healthy. And there had never been a drug like that um, before. So this was they, they realized um, by about 1956-57 that this was worth taking a chance on. And you know, to his credit, Jack Searle, the CEO of the company, um, really began became to care began to care about the issue. He went down to Puerto Rico and saw the women who were engaged in these clinical trials and saw how miserable they were. Um, the average family and the average woman in Puerto Rico at the time had six point seven children, and, um, and and he began to see that this could be a huge help to the world um, and and could reduce a lot of um, health problems and reduce poverty. So he bought into it. 
So once the the, uh, the pill was approved by the FB, FDA in 19, and well, first it was approved for purposes of controlling or regulating menstrual cycles. It was right. 1960 when it was actually approved for specifically for birth control. That's right. Um, so what happened in those intervening years? How did that change? Were the law, did the laws change or attitudes change? Well, I think just as we've seen recently with gay marriage, behavior changes first and the law catches up. So it, so many women began using this pill off-label to control their family size, even though it wasn't um, approved for that. That when the when Cyril went back to the FDA and said, "Remember that pill that we that you approved a few years ago?" Uh, well, we'd like to add a use. They didn't file a new drug application. They just said we'd like to add another use. It also works as effective birth control, and here's all the evidence that we have to support that. And it was very difficult for the FDA at that point to say no because the cat was out of the bag. Women were already using it, and there would have been a tremendous backlash. Just like you know today, there would be a tremendous backlash. If you denied gay marriage, you've already got people who are, you know, going about and doing it. So um, human behavior, the, hu- the culture evolves and the law catches up, and that's exactly what happened. Okay. So what do you think is a takeaway for people who read this book? The book is extremely lively. It moves very fast. You have really fascinating stories, lots of interesting details. What do you think is a takeaway for this for people? You know, it's funny because I, when I when I finished the book, I remembered that I had never really told my rabbi that that his sermon had helped me inspire this, and he'd given this sermon and said that the birth control pill was the most important invention of the 20th century. So I called him and I said, you know, what was the point of that sermon? I really don't remember. I remember you saying that the pill was was important, but I think there was a deeper point you were trying to make. And he said, yeah, the the point of the sermon really was that in Genesis uh, we're told that. that that man is a partner with God in the creation of the universe. And that sometimes it's not enough just to be a better person. Sometimes you have to think about what you can do to change the shape of the world. And that's what the inventors of the birth control pill did. These, these four outsiders believed that they could do something that the law said was, was, was forbidden, that science said was impossible, that thousands of years of human history suggested would never work, that they could make women equal to men by giving them control of their bodies. And, and, and they believed that they could do this, the biggest thing that imaginable. So I think the point of the book is that, you know, you, you, sometimes you have to fight for, for change, even if you think, um, even if the rest of the world thinks you're never going to succeed. Okay, Jonathan, you've been very generous with your time. I just have one more question. What are you working on now? I'm working on a, a book about another rebel. Uh, this one is uh, Muhammad Ali. And um, it's going to be a really crazy, fun book. Well, thank you, and thank you to our listeners for tuning in to another edition of New Books and Gender Studies. I would enjoy hearing from you. Email me at newbooks.gender at gmail.com. This is your host, Lillian Barger.